Section 8 of To the Last Man by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4, Part 2. All at once Ellen felt cold shivers steal over her. Isbel's piercing gaze was directed straight at her hiding place. Her heart stopped beating. If he discovered her there, she felt that she would die of shame. Then she became aware that a blue jay was screeching in a pine above her, and a red squirrel somewhere near was chattering his shrill annoyance. These two denizens of the woods could be depended upon to espy the wariest hunter and make known his presence to their kind. Ellen had a moment of more than dread. This keen-eyed, keen-eared Indian might see right through her brushy covert, might hear the throbbing of her heart. It relieved her immeasurably to see him turn away and take the pacing the promontory with his head bowed and his hands behind his back. He had stopped looking off into the forest. Presently he wheeled to the west, and by the light upon his face, Ellen saw that the time was near sunset. Turkeys were beginning to gobble back on the ridge. Isbel walked to his horse and appeared to be untying something from the back of his saddle. When he came back, Ellen saw that he carried a small package, apparently wrapped in paper. With this under his arm, he strode off in the direction of Ellen's camp and soon disappeared in the forest. For a little while Ellen lay there in bewilderment. If she had made conjectures before, they were now multiplied. Where was Jean Esbel going? Ellen sat up suddenly. Well, sure this here beats me, she said. What did he have in that package? What was he going to do with it? It took no little willpower to hold her there when she wanted to steal after him through the woods and find out what he meant. But his reputation influenced even her, and she refused to pit her cunning in the forest against his. It would be better to wait until he returned to his horse. Thus decided, she lay back again in her covert and gave her mind over to pondering curiosity. Sooner than she expected, she espied Isabel approaching through the forest empty-handed. He had not taken his rifle. Ellen averted her glance a moment and thrilled to see the rifle leaning against a rock. Verily, Jean Isbel had been far removed from hostile intent that day. She watched him stride swiftly up to his horse, untie the halter, and mount. Ellen had an impression of his arrow-like straight figure and sinuous grace and ease. Then he looked back at the promontory as if to fix a picture of it in his mind, and rode away along the rim. She watched him out of sight. What ailed her? Something was wrong with her, but she recognized only relief. When Isabel had been gone long enough to assure Ellen that she might safely venture forth, she crawled through the pine thicket to the rim on the other side of the point. The sun was setting behind the black range, shedding a golden glory over the basin. Westward, the zigzag rim reached like a streamer of fire into the sun. The vast promontories jutted out with blazing beacon lights upon their stone-walled faces. Deep down, the basin was turning shadowy dark blue, going to sleep for the night. Ellen bent swift steps toward her camp. 
Long shafts of gold preceded her through the forest. Then they paled and vanished. The tips of pines and spruces turned gold. A hoarse-voiced old turkey gobbler was booming his chug-a-lug from the highest ground, and the softer chick of hen turkeys answered him. Ellen was almost breathless when she arrived. Two packs and a couple of lop-eared burrows attested to the fact of Antonio's return. This was good news for Ellen. She heard the bleat of lambs and the tinkle of bells coming nearer and nearer, and she was glad to feel that if Isbel had visited her camp, most probably it was during the absence of the herders. The instant she glanced into her tent, she saw the package Isbel had carried. It lay on her bed. Ellen stared blankly. The impudence of him, she ejaculated. Then she kicked the package out of the tent. Words and actions seemed to liberate a damned-up hot fury. She kicked the package again, and thought she would kick it into the smoldering campfire. But somehow she stopped short of that. She left the thing there on the ground. Pepe and Antonio hove in sight, driving in the tumbling woolly flock. Ellen did not want them to see the package, so with contempt for herself and somewhat lessening anger, she kicked it back into the tent. What was in it? She peeped inside the tent, devoured by curiosity. Neat, well-wrapped, and tied packages like that were not often seen in the Tonto Basin. Ellen decided she would wait until after supper and, at a favorable moment, lay it unopened on the fire. What did she care what it contained? Manifestly, it was a gift. She argued that she was highly incensed with this insolent Isbel, who had the effrontery to approach her with some sort of present. It developed that the usually cheerful Antonio had returned taciturn and gloomy. All Ellen could get out of him was that the job of a sheepherder had taken on hazards inimical to peace-loving Mexicans. He had heard something he would not tell. Ellen helped prepare the supper, and she ate in silence. She had her own brooding troubles. Antonio presently told her that her father had said she was not to start back home after dark. After supper, the herders repaired to their own tent, leaving Ellen the freedom of her campfire. Wherewith, she secured the package and brought it forth to burn. Feminine curiosity rankled strong in her breast, yielding so far as to shake the parcel and press it, and finally tear a corner off the paper, she saw some words written in lead pencil. Bending nearer the blaze, she read, For my sister Anne. Ellen gazed at the big, bold handwriting, quite legible and fairly well done. Suddenly, she tore the outside wrapper completely off. From printed words on the inside, she gathered that the package had come from a store in San Francisco. Reckon he fetched home a lot of presents for his folks, the kids and his sister, muttered Ellen. That was nice of him. Whatever this is, he sure meant it for his sister, Anne, Anne Isbel. Why, she must be that black-eyed girl I met and liked so well, before I knew she was an Isbel, his sister. Whereupon, for the second time, Ellen deposited the fascinating package in her tent. She could not burn it up just then. 
She had other emotions besides scorn and hate. And memory of that soft-voiced, kind-hearted, beautiful Isbel girl checked her resentment. I wonder if he is like his sister, she said thoughtfully. It appeared to be an unfortunate thought. Jean Isbel certainly resembled his sister. Too bad they belonged to the family that ruined Dad. Ellen went to bed without opening the package or without burning it. And to her annoyance, wherever she lay, she appeared to touch this strange package. There was not much room in the little tent. First she put it at her head beside her rifle. But when she turned over, her cheek came in contact with it. Then she felt as if she had been stung. She moved it again, only to touch it presently with her hand. Next, she flung it to the bottom of her bed, where it fell upon her feet. And whatever way she moved them, she could not escape the pressure of this undesirable and mysterious gift. By and by she fell asleep, only to dream that the package was a caressing hand stealing about her, feeling for hers, and holding it with soft, strong clasp. When she awoke, she had the strangest sensation in her right palm. It was moist, throbbing, hot, and the feel of it on her cheek was strangely thrilling and comforting. She lay awake then. The night was dark and still. Only a low moan of wind in the pines and the faint tinkle of a sheep bell broke the serenity. She felt very small and lonely lying there in the deep forest, and try how she would, it was impossible to think the same then as she did in the clear light of day. Resentment, pride, anger, these seemed abated now. If the events of the day had not changed her, they had at least brought up softer, kinder memories and emotions than she had known for long. Nothing hurt and saddened her so much as to remember the gay, happy days of her childhood, her sweet mother, her old home. Then her thought returned to Isbel and his gift. It had been years since anyone had made her a gift. What could this one be? It did not matter. The wonder was that Jean Isbel should bring it to her and that she could be perturbed by its presence. He meant it for his sister, and so he thought well of me, she said in finality. Morning brought Ellen further vacillation. At length she rolled the obnoxious package inside her blankets, saying that she would wait until she got home and then consign it cheerfully to the flames. Antonio tied her pack on a burrow. She did not have a horse and therefore had to walk the several miles to her father's ranch. She set off at a brisk pace, leading the burrow and carrying her rifle, and soon she was deep in the fragrant forest. The morning was clear and cool, with just enough frost to make the sunlit grass sparkle as if with diamonds. Ellen felt fresh, buoyant, singularly full of life. Her youth would not be denied. It was pulsing, yearning. She hummed an old southern tune, and every step seemed one of pleasure in action, of advance toward some intangible future happiness. All the unknown of life before her called. Her heart beat high in her breast, and she walked as one in a dream. Her thoughts were swift-changing, intimate, deep, and vague, not of yesterday or today, nor of reality. The big gray white-tailed squirrels crossed ahead of her on the trail, 
scampered over the piney ground to hop on tree trunks, and there they paused to watch her pass. The vociferous little red squirrels barked and chatted at her. From every thicket sounded the gobbles of turkeys. The blue jays squalled in the treetops. A deer lifted his head from browsing and stood motionless, with long ears erect, watching her go by. Thus happily and dreamily absorbed, Ellen covered the forest miles and soon reached the trail that led down into the wild breaks of Chevalon Canyon. It was rough going and less conducive to sweet wanderings of mind. Ellen slowly lost them, and then a familiar feeling assailed her, one she never failed to have upon returning to her father's ranch, a reluctance, a bitter dissatisfaction with her home, a loyal struggle against the vague sense that all was not as it should be. At the head of this canyon, in a little, level, grassy meadow, stood a rude, one-room log shack, with a leaning red stone chimney on the outside. This was the abode of a strange old man who had long lived there. His name was John Sprague, and his occupation was raising burrows. No sheep or cattle or horses did he own, not even a dog. Rumor had said Sprague was a prospector, one of the many who had searched that country for the lost Dutchman gold mine. Sprague knew more about the basin and the rim than any of the sheepmen or ranchers. From the Black Butte to the Sibiquiu, and from Chevlon Butte to Reno Pass, he knew every trail, canyon, ridge, and spring, and could find his way to them on the darkest night. His fame, however, depended mostly upon the fact that he did nothing but raise burrows, and would raise nothing but black burrows with white faces. These burrows were the finest bread in all the basin and were in great demand. Sprague sold a few every year. He had made a present of one to Ellen, although he hated to part with them. This old man was Ellen's one and only friend. Upon her trip out to the rim with the sheep, Uncle John, as Ellen called him, had been away on one of his infrequent visits to Grass Valley. It pleased her now to see a blue column of smoke lazily lifting from the old chimney and to hear the discordant bray of burrows. As she entered the clearing, Sprague saw her from the door of his shack. "'Hello, Uncle John,' she called. "'Well, if it ain't Ellen,' he replied heartily. "'When I seen that white-faced Jinny, I knew who was leading her. Where you been, girl?' Sprague was a little, stoop-shouldered old man, with gristled head and face, and shrewd gray eyes that beamed kindly on her over his ruddy cheeks. Ellen did not like the tobacco stain on his grizzled beard, nor the dirty, motley, ragged, ill-smelling garb he wore, but she had ceased her useless attempts to make him more cleanly. "'I've been herding sheep,' replied Ellen. "'And where have you been, Uncle? I missed you on the way over.' been packing in some grub, and I reckon I stayed longer in Grass Valley than I recollect, but that was only natural, considering. What? asked Ellen bluntly, as the old man paused. Sprague took a black pipe out of his vest pocket and began rimming the bowl with his fingers. The glance he bent on Ellen was thoughtful and earnest, and so kind that she feared it was pity. Ellen suddenly burned, for news from the village. 
"'Well, come in and sit down, won't you?' he asked. "'No, thanks,' replied Ellen, and she took a seat on the chopping block. "'Tell me, Uncle, what's going on down in the valley?' "'Nothing much yet except talk, and there's a heap of that.' "'Huh. There's always talk,' declared Ellen contemptuously. "'A nasty, gossipy, catty hole, that grass valley.' "'Ellen, there's going to be war, a bloody war in the old Tonto Basin.' went on Sprague seriously. War? Between whom? The Isbels and their enemies. I reckon most people down there, and sure all the cattlemen, are on old Gass's side. Blaisdell, Gordon, Fredericks, Blue. They'll all be in it. Who are they going to fight? queried Ellen sharply. Well, the open talk is that the sheepmen are forcing this war. But there's talk not so open and I reckon not very healthy for any man to whisper hereabouts. Uncle John, you needn't be afraid to tell me anything, said Ellen. I'd never give you away. You've been a good friend to me. Reckon I want to be, Ellen, he returned, nodding his shaggy head. It ain't easy to be fond of you as I am and keep my mouth shut. I'd like to know something. Have you any relatives away from here that you could go to till this fight is over? No, all I have, so far as I know, are right here. How about friends? Uncle John, I have none, she said sadly, with bowed head. Well, well, I'm sorry. I was hoping you might get away. She lifted her face. Sure you don't think I'd run off if my dad got into a fight, she flashed. I hope you will. I'm a jorth, she said darkly, and dropped her head again. Sprague nodded gloomily. Evidently he was perplexed and worried, and strongly swayed by affection for her. "'Would you go away with me?' he asked. "'We could pack over to the Mazatels and live there till this blows over.' "'Thank you, Uncle John. You're kind and good, but I'll stay with my father. His troubles are mine.' "'Uh-huh. Well, I might have reckoned so. Ellen, how do you stand on this here sheep and cattle question?' I think what's fair for one is fair for another. I don't like sheep as much as I like cattle, but that's not the point. The range is free. Suppose you had cattle and I had sheep. I'd feel as free to run my sheep anywhere as you were to run your cattle. Right. But what if you throwed your sheep round my range and sheeped off the grass so my cattle would have to move or starve? Sure, I wouldn't throw my sheep round your range, she declared stoutly. Well, you've answered half of the question, and now suppose a lot of my cattle was stolen by rustlers, but not a single one of your sheep. What'd you think then? I'd sure think rustlers chose to steal cattle, because there was no profit in stealing sheep. Exactly. But wouldn't you have a queer idea about it? I don't know. Why queer? What are you driving at, Uncle John? Well... Wouldn't you get kind of a hunch that the rustlers was, say, a little friendly toward the sheepmen? Ellen felt a sudden, vibrating shock. The blood rushed to her temples. Trembling all over, she rose. Uncle John, she cried. Now, girl, you needn't fire up that way. Set down and don't. Dare you insinuate my father has? Ellen, I ain't insinuating nothing, interrupted the old man. I'm just asking you to think, that's all. You're most grown into a young woman now. 
and you've got sense. There's bad times ahead, Ellen, and I hate to see you mix in them. Oh, you do make me think, replied Ellen, with smarting tears in her eyes. You make me unhappy. Oh, I know my dad is not liked in this cattle country, but it's unjust. He happened to go in for sheep raising. I wish he hadn't. It was a mistake. Dad always was a cattleman till he came here. He made enemies who, who ruined him, and everywhere misfortune crossed his trail. But, oh, Uncle John, my dad is an honest man. Well, child, I didn't mean to make you cry, said the old man feelingly, and he averted his troubled gaze. Never mind what I said. I'm an old meddler. I reckon nothing I could do or say would ever change what's going to happen. If only you wasn't a girl. There I go again. Ellen, face your future and fight your way. All youngsters have to do that. And it's the right kind of fight that makes the right kind of man or woman. Only you must be sure to find yourself. And by that I mean to find the real, true, honest-to-God best in you and stick to it and die fighting for it. You're a young woman, almost, and a blamed handsome one, which means you'll have more trouble and a harder fight. This country ain't easy on a woman. Once slander has marked her. What do I care for talk down in that basin, returned Ellen. I know they think I'm a hussy. I've let them think it. I've helped them to. You're wrong, child, said Sprague earnestly. Pride and temper. You must never let anyone think bad of you, much less help them to. I hate everybody down there, cried Ellen passionately. I hate them so I glory in their thinking me bad. My mother belonged to the best blood in Texas. I am her daughter. I know who and what I am. That uplifts me whenever I meet the sneaky, sly suspicions of these basin people. It shows me the difference between them and me. That's what I glory in. Ellen, you're a wild, headstrong child, rejoined the old man in severe tones. Word has been passed again your good name, your honor, and haven't you given cause for that? Ellen felt her face blanch, and all her blood rushed back to her heart in sickening force. The shock of his words was like a stab from a cold blade. If their meaning and the stern, just light of the old man's glance did not kill her pride and vanity, they surely killed her girlishness. She stood mute, staring at him, with her brown, trembling hands stealing up toward her bosom, as if to ward off another and a mortal blow. Ellen burst out Sprague hoarsely. You mistook me. Ah, I didn't mean what you think. I swear, Ellen, I'm old and blunt. I ain't used to women. But I've a love for you, child, and respect, just the same as if you were my own. And I know you're good. Forgive me. I meant only, haven't you been, say, sort of careless? Careless? queried Ellen, bitterly and low. And powerful thoughtless, and blind, letting men kiss you and fondle you, when you're really a grown-up woman now. Yes, I have, whispered Ellen. Well, then, why did you let them? I don't know. I didn't think. The men never let me alone. Never, never. I got tired everlastingly pushing them away. And sometimes, when they were kind and I was lonely for something, 
I didn't mind if one or another fooled around. I never thought. It never looked as you have made it look. Then, those few times, riding the trail to Grass Valley, when people saw me, then I guess I encouraged such attentions. Oh, I must be. I'm a shameless little hussy. Hush that kind of talk, said the old man, as he took her hand. Ellen, you're only young and lonely and bitter. No mother, no friends, no one but a lot of rough men. It's a wonder you have kept yourself good. But now your eyes are open, Ellen. They're brave and beautiful eyes, girl, and if you stand by the light in them, you will come through any trouble. And you'll be happy. Don't ever forget that. Life is hard enough, God knows, but it's unfailing true in the end to the man or woman who finds the best in them and stands by it. Uncle John, you talk so kindly. You've made me have hope. There seems so little for me to live for, hope for. But I'll never be a coward again, nor a thoughtless fool. I will find some good in me, or make some, and never fail it, come what will. I'll remember your words. I'll believe the future holds wonderful things for me. I'm only eighteen. Sure, all my life won't be lived here. Perhaps this threatened fight over sheep and cattle will blow over. Somewhere there must be some nice girl to be a friend, a sister to me, and maybe some man who'd believe, in spite of all they say, that I'm not a hussy. Well, Ellen, you remind me of what I was wanting to tell you when you just got here. Yesterday I heard you call that name in a barroom, and there was a fellow there who raised hell. He nearly killed one man and made another plum eat his words, and he scared that crowd stiff. Old John Sprague shook his grizzled head and laughed, beaming upon Ellen as if the memory of what he had seen had warmed his heart. "'Was it you?' asked Ellen, tremulously. "'Me? Ah, oh, I wasn't nowhere. Ellen, this fellow was quick as a cat in his actions, and his words was like lightning.' "'Who?' she whispered. "'Well, no one else but a stranger just come to these parts, and Isbel, too. Jean Isbel.' "'Oh!' exclaimed Ellen faintly. "'In a barroom full of men, almost all of them in sympathy with the sheep crowd, most of them on the Jorth side, this Jean Isabel resented an insult to Ellen Jorth. No, cried Ellen. Something terrible was happening to her mind or her heart. Well, he sure did, replied the old man, and it's going to be good for you to hear all about it. End of chapter 4, part 2